I woke up this morning with a really bad pain in my tooth, Mr. Wells. All right, take a seat and let's have a look. All right, open wide. Horace Wells was a dentist who cared about his patients. More specifically, he cared about minimizing the pain he inflicted upon them. Oh. But during the first half of the 19th century, that wasn't easy to do. In the early days of modern dentistry, there was nothing to dull the excruciating pain that came with a trip to the dentist. Ow. Ow. That's why Horace Wells was so excited by a demonstration he witnessed on December 10, 1844, in Hartford, Connecticut. A traveling showman named Gardner Colton is on stage demonstrating the effects of nitrous oxide, better known as laughing gas. <laughs> While under the influence of the gas, one of the volunteers in the show accidentally injures himself when he hits his leg on a wooden bench. When questioned afterwards, the volunteer tells Wells that the injury caused him no pain whatsoever. And that gives Horace Wells an idea. The next day, he brings Colton to his office and has him administer nitrous oxide while an associate extracts one of Wells's troublesome wisdom teeth. After the effects of the gas wear off, Wells declares that he did not feel so much as the prick of a pen and triumphantly proclaims that a new era of painless dentistry has arrived. A few weeks later, Wells decides to introduce the world to the benefits of his new anesthesia. At Massachusetts General Hospital, in front of a large audience of medical students, Wells administers nitrous oxide to a patient. But as he begins to extract a tooth, his patient cries out in pain. The audience in the surgical theater starts to voice their displeasure. Wells is called a charlatan and a fraud. Unfortunately, Wells had not properly administered the gas. He was unaware that nitrous oxide was less effective on heavy drinkers and the obese. And his patient that day was both. Professionally disgraced after his failed demonstration, Horace Wells dissolved his dental practice and a few years later took his own life. It would take another 20 years before the American medical and dental establishments would officially recognize his role in the discovery of anesthesia. And we continue to reap the rewards of Horace Wells' discovery today. Anesthesia has allowed dentists to perform increasingly intricate and complex procedures with minimal pain to patients. We've made enormous strides in conquering dental disease and promoting oral health. But many challenges remain. That's why researchers are focusing on disease prevention and making dental care more affordable and accessible for millions of people 
around the world. And that's an idea Horace Wells would have happily embraced. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you're listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies. Judy has to see her friend, the dentist, before she goes to the beach. Would you like to learn how to have strong, healthy teeth? She has been careful to brush her teeth after each meal, and she has brushed her teeth the right way. You're so crazy about seeing teeth brush. Here, brush them yourself. Only get out of here and let me have some privacy. The fact that anesthesia first appeared in dentistry rather than medicine was no accident of history. Horace Wells's patients would have been accustomed to living with chronic pain throughout their bodies. But the pain that came from living with a mouthful of rotting teeth was on an entirely different level. Today, extraction and the use of heavy anesthetics like nitrous oxide is usually a last resort. But before the latter part of the 19th century, a toothache was more likely to be treated by someone with no training at all, often using instruments that they had manufactured themselves. The main solution was just to extract the tooth that was infected or giving someone trouble. Mary Otto is the author of the book Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. And that fell to different people in the community, whether it was the blacksmith, you know, who was obviously a strong and skilled person, or maybe a apothecary, someone who had a sense of what needed to be done to get this infected, painful tooth out of someone's jaw. And dental care was basically thought of still as surgical, cared for by people with manual skills, you know, in kind of a mechanical way. Barbers were also considered suitable to perform dental work. For centuries, people believed toothworms, maggot-like creatures that lived inside the mouth, were the cause of most dental problems. Bleeding the worms out was one way of getting rid of them, and barbers were called upon to do the job. The red lines that you still see on barber poles today harken back to the days when barbers were also bleeders. There were no dental schools, and for a long time, there were no books that an aspiring dentist could study to learn his craft. That began to change in 1728, when a French dentist named Pierre Fauchard published his essay, The Surgeon Dentist. Fauchard cataloged best practices for treatment and for the first time presented a scientific basis for dental disease that didn't include toothworms or other bogus theories. In America, a turning point occurred in the 1840s, thanks to the perseverance of two Baltimore dentists named Horace Hayden and Shapin Harris. Hayden and Harris studied the works of Fauchard and were convinced there had to be a better way to learn and practice dentistry. 
these two guys got together and talked about it. They said, dentistry is worthy of professional status. You know, they'd seen enough people dying of dental sepsis, you know, where an infected tooth had created a life-threatening and a fatal infection in a person. You know, they believed that scientific principles had to be applied to dentistry. And these two men went to the physicians of the College of Medicine in Baltimore and proposed that they add a course of dental training to their medical courses there. But as the story goes, the physicians sent them away with this admonition that the subject of dentistry was of little consequence. These two guys would not take no for an answer though. They set up their own college of dentistry. It was hailed as the world's first college of dentistry. The Baltimore College of Dental Surgery was established in 1840. Other standalone dental schools soon followed. But dentistry was still not considered scientific enough to be included with medical training. It took the work of a pioneering dentist from Illinois named G.V. Black to help change that perception. He was trained under the old apprenticeship system. You know, he didn't attend a dental college, but he was a well-known inventor. He patented a cord-driven engine and foot motor for the power dental drills, and he standardized a formula for the dental amalgam that, you know, dentists used to restore teeth to fill fillings. And he developed a chart of carious lesions, you know, tooth decay, to sort of chart the location of a decayed place on a tooth. So advances that were adopted and changed the practice of dentistry for many other practitioners. Perhaps Black's greatest contribution was focusing on cavity prevention and repair. In doing so, he forever shifted the focus of dentistry away from extraction and set the stage for the great advances in dentistry that we enjoy today. Researchers now have an extraordinary amount of information about the causes of tooth decay and how to treat and prevent it. They know, for example, that a clear, sticky film called plaque forms on the surface of our teeth when we don't brush and floss properly. The acid and bacteria in plaque can eat through the protective outer layer of enamel on our teeth and attack the dentin. That's the bony tissue that makes up the bulk of the tooth under the enamel. From there, it's a short trip to the pulp where the nerves and blood vessels are located. If the pulp gets infected, it can swell and press against a nerve. That's when we usually head to the dentist for a filling or possibly a root canal. Then the pulp tissue is removed and the canal is cleaned, filled, and sealed. The problem is that those fillings, which are usually made of ceramics, metal, or resins, can degrade over time, requiring even more invasive dental work. And that's led some researchers to wonder if there may be a better way. What if the tooth's own cells can be used to regrow it, turning a damaged tooth into a healthy one? Our approach was trying to work with the cells that are in the tooth already and to place a material that we know from our experiments engineers the cells to do what we want to, and if we were to place it into the tooth to stimulate new dentin production. That's Adam Silas. He's a lecturer in the Department of Bioengineering at Imperial College in London. 
He and his colleagues are working on developing a new kind of filling made from a synthetic biomaterial that can stimulate stem cell growth in the pulp of the tooth. It actually restores the tooth to its original form, potentially, in terms of producing new dentin, rather than putting something in that is inert. And if you were to get a root canal, those teeth are very prone to being removed later down the line because you're removing a lot of the living matter from the tooth. So this is potentially providing an alternative based on some natural tooth repair and providing new dental tissues, which can enable the, the tooth to remain viable for longer. What Sealers is proposing is known as regenerative dentistry. Regenerative dentistry uses cell and molecular biology to repair, rejuvenate, and regenerate dental tissues. It's become the holy grail for dental researchers around the world, but it's still in its very early stages. So far, Sealers' group has managed to regenerate dentin cells in the lab. Long and costly human trials are still to come, but he's convinced regeneration will play an important role in the future of dentistry. So I think there's lots of innovations occurring already in dentistry, and I think approaches that incorporate regenerative medicine won't be too far behind. It's just a matter of trying to bridge in the gap in terms of how much these therapies will cost. But I think if these um, approaches were made available to the patient, I think they would be popular and I think they would be really welcomed because I think I certainly would welcome a natural growth of a tissue rather than having something foreign and synthetic implanted in, in my mouth. You don't have to wait years to experience regenerative dentistry in action. You can actually do it today for just the cost of a tube of toothpaste. Over the millennia, People have tried just about everything to keep their teeth clean. The ancient Egyptians used abrasives like ashes from ground-up oxoves, crushed bones, and burnt eggshells. In Europe in the 18th century, stale toast was ground into a fine powder and used to scrub teeth. By the middle of the 19th century, ingredients also included chalk, soap, and ground charcoal. But until recently, there's one ingredient that no one has ever thought of adding to toothpaste, glass. I'm Dr. Swapina Hete. I'm a senior clinical lecturer at Queen Mary University of London and a clinical advisor to Biomin. Biomin is the name of the glass-filled toothpaste. But Dr. Nahete wants you to know that the glass in Biomin is not the kind found in your windows. This toothpaste has bioactive glass. So bioactive glasses are essentially glasses that when they come in contact with body fluids, they form crystals. The crystals have the ability to bond with dental tissues, bone tissues, any mineralized tissues in the body. Glass that you have in your window does not dissolve on contact with body fluids. Bioactive glass forms a rapid, strong, and stable chemical bond with tissues. And most importantly, it helps regenerate bones by instructing the body to recruit cells and start healing. The idea of using what was essentially bone graft material to help prevent cavities and relieve hypersensitivity is a more recent development. 
Biomin toothpaste hit the market in the UK in 2016, describing itself as armor for teeth. It uses bioactive glass to attach a durable mineral to the surface of the tooth. The mineral is similar to our tooth enamel, but twice as strong and more resistant to acid. And unlike standard toothpaste, that armor stays in place, protecting your teeth for up to 12 hours after you've stopped brushing. By attaching this armor-like mineral to teeth and keeping it there throughout the day, Bioglass toothpaste claims to offer relief for millions of people who suffer from hypersensitive teeth. And because Bioglass is regenerative, it can actually repair damaged tissue and might even offer the possibility of a world without cavities. Nahete believes we're just beginning to understand the full potential of bioactive glass. We're trying to use it in dental materials. So, you know, the composite filling materials, instead of having the inert material in there as a filler, if we try to use a bit of bioactive glass in there, that's brilliant because all of the properties that this toothpaste will give, those will be in that composite. And there's good research and there's that's one avenue we're looking at. And then we're looking at root canal treatment materials where we can signal to cells and say, hey, you know, start healing here. Biomin can actually really take this into the next generation of regenerative dentistry, whether it's using in um, orthodontic composites or tooth filling composites, root canal materials, and so many more applications. One of the reasons why the research into regenerative dentistry is so urgent is that we're facing a major global crisis of dental affordability and accessibility. It's estimated that 2.4 billion people around the world have little to no access to oral health treatment and care. Poor oral health has been associated with some types of cancer, pneumonia, dementia, and other serious diseases. So anything that can reduce the high cost of dental care and make it easier for people to take proper care of their teeth can make a big difference. And one of the most promising approaches on that front involves 3D printing. My name is Max Lebowski, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Form Labs. Max Lebowski first encountered 3D printing when he was about 12 years old. My father worked at a big engineering company that had an early machine, and it was kind of a million-dollar room-sized piece of equipment, probably one of the first few dozen machines in the world at the time. Lebowski was intrigued by the potential of that giant machine. Then, as an undergraduate at Cornell, he joined a group that was building an affordable 3D printer that could fit on a desktop. He's been building 3D printers ever since. And in 2011, he and his partners started Formlabs. They built 3D printers for professionals, not the mass market. And among their earliest customers were dental labs. 
We started with a Kickstarter campaign. We sold a thousand printers. And even in those first thousand printers, there were a couple dental labs buying our product. So even though we didn't market for dental at all, people who knew the technology and knew dental, they saw the opportunity. And then after a couple years, we saw, okay, there's actually some people successful in the dental world using our products. We should start to really target this market and bring solutions dedicated for this market forward. And it, it came faster than I would have expected. Today, Formlabs is a leading provider of 3D printers for dentists and dental labs. Their machines are used to make crowns, dentures, retainers, and a variety of other products faster and more cheaply than is currently the case. Let's say you need a crown for one of your teeth. Today, that process will typically start with the dentist taking a mold or impression of your mouth. They'll send it off to the lab, where a technician will make the crown. Then, it's sent back to the dentist. You'll come in for a fitting, and after all that, the dentist will likely send it back to the lab for some final adjustments. Then, you'll come in for a third appointment and finally get your crown. It's a time-consuming and expensive process, one that can be greatly simplified with 3D printing. And what digital dentistry lets you do is you... You get the patient geometry with an intraoral scanner, basically wave a little wand around in your mouth and you get a digital model of your mouth. And then in software, you generate the design for the part you want to make and print it and get an accurate result out. And that whole process can be done uh, in some cases in a matter of an hour. You can get better, more accurate results that, that don't need um, adjustment. You can do it faster. You can do it more cost-effective uh, because it cuts out um, a lot of the expensive labor in the process. You know, so dentures can can cost uh, upwards of a thousand dollars, and the cost to produce a denture with a with our system is on the order of fifty dollars. So it can be a very substantial reduction. 3D printers are rapidly revolutionizing dentistry. Most large labs in America now have them. And over the next few years, as the machines become cheaper and easier to use, they'll become as ubiquitous in dental offices as x-rays and drills. Lebowski believes that will benefit everyone. The thing I'm maybe most excited about is really the broader access, you know, something like a denture. That's something that isn't available to everyone, even in the developed world, it can can be too expensive. And, and certainly in the developing world, a high quality denture is not a standard thing that people have, but it makes a big impact on a person's uh, health and, and mental health and lots of studies showing benefit of uh, dental uh, devices like that. And if we can make it so that it's something that can be produced for, for tens of dollars, we can get these to many more people than ever had access to. And I think that's, you know, that's what's powerful about technology in general is sort of leveling the playing field. I think we have a real opportunity to do that in, in the dental world. But not every important innovation in dentistry comes in the form of sophisticated technology like 3D printers. Sometimes a revolution can happen by reimagining an existing piece of technology, including something as rudimentary as the humble toothbrush. Back in the 15th century, the Chinese brushed their teeth by attaching bristles from a pig's neck to a bone or a bamboo handle. Europeans preferred a softer touch, so they replaced the pig bristles with horse hairs. 
sometimes even with feathers. It wasn't until the invention of nylon in the 1930s that synthetic bristles replaced the real thing. And that's pretty much where toothbrush innovation stopped. If you look at the design of the toothbrush, it is essentially a bristle on a stick, which remained relatively unchanged for centuries. That's Michel Koo. He's the director of the Center for Innovation and Precision Dentistry at the University of Pennsylvania. Yes, adding electric motors certainly elevated that basic bristle on a stick format, but the fundamental concept still remained the same. It still requires manual dexterity and um, is not completely effective. And essentially, it's a technology that has not been disrupted in decades. Koo is part of a multidisciplinary team of engineers, dentists, and roboticists who are in the process of thoroughly disrupting the toothbrush. Conventional toothbrushes are not very effective at removing plaque or preventing its formation in the first place. Anyone who has ever sat in a dentist chair while a hygienist picked away at the plaque on their teeth knows how difficult it can be to remove it. Koo figured there must be a better way. So he paid a visit to the university's School of Engineering. They were already working in robotic systems, in working with micro-robots for totally different applications. And, uh, and when, I, when I came uh, to them and I, I present the problem, and, uh, and, you know, obviously we start to talk, we start to discuss ideas, and, uh, and, and just, you know, by, um, by uh, just having people that think differently, having clinicians and also engineers in the same room talking about a common problem. The ideas start to spurn out and, and we, uh, we come up with this uh, uh, idea of using nanoparticles to, to build these micro-robots to clean up uh, dental plaque. This was their big idea. Place an army of shape-shifting, plaque-eating micro-robots made up of iron oxide nanoparticles inside the mouth. Then subject them to a magnetic field and watch them do everything that a toothbrush and even dental floss can do, only better. And if you think that sounds a bit crazy, you're not alone. It was funny because in the beginning, I was also a little bit skeptical. You know, as a scientist, you're always skeptical first, right? And, and when the engineers start to show, you know, how these nanoparticles really assemble into these bristle-like structures, that was the first time I saw the possibilities of applying nanoparticles, magnetic field, you know, to form something that can be used to remove plaque. I think, I think it's the visualization of these nanoparticles, a solution becoming a bristle-like structure. When I saw that, that's where, I think it was the moment where I thought it would be possible in terms of plaque removal. Koo says the bristles that these nanoparticles would form inside your mouth will look more like a paintbrush than a traditional toothbrush. One reason your toothbrush isn't a very effective plaque fighter is that there are parts of your mouth that are really hard to reach. A second reason, as your hygienist is probably always reminding you, is that there are right ways and wrong ways to brush. These micro-robots solve both of those problems. The cool thing here is that the paintbrush or the brush-like shape 
is built up inside the mouth. You know, so there's nanoparticles. So imagine a solution full of little particles, little small tiny beads, right? So once you uh, activate the magnetic field, they assemble into this paintbrush-like, you know, structure. And that brush can move. You you can make circular motions, going back and forth, like you know, toothbrushing, but without manual dexterity. That's totally automated because the the magnetic field control their movements. So um, that's the beauty of this technology. A lot has changed in dentistry since Horace Wells discovered anesthesia and used it to painlessly extract his wisdom tooth. Brushing your teeth with micro-robots, 3D-printed dentures, repairing decaying teeth with regenerative dentistry. It's clear that the future of dentistry will look very different from its past. We now have effective treatments for almost all major dental diseases. But the keys to the future will be in prevention and making sure those treatments are affordable and accessible. I think we are in a very interesting crossroad. Um, I think we have gained and continues to gain incredible knowledge through research. So in my view, I think uh, a key point for innovation is twofold how to leverage all these amazing discoveries and knowledges so we can create more precise ways to diagnose, prevent, and treat oral diseases so it can be effective to those who are susceptible. And more importantly, we need to make sure that all these approaches and technologies are accessible and affordable for everyone. So I think this together, I think what will guide not only us, but I I hope others, in terms of innovating and transforming uh, dentistry as we know today. I'm Walter Isaacson, and you've been listening to Trailblazers, an original podcast from Dell Technologies, who believe there's an innovator in all of us. If you want to learn more about the guests in today's episode, please visit delltechnologies.com slash trailblazers. Thanks for listening.